0: The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. So, if you'd like, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter number six. John's Gospel, chapter number six, I know it is a rare thing for me to jump right into a text, but I want to take just a few moments in the very beginning to reestablish where we have been and also where we're going. And our last two messages from the Gospel of John, I have mentioned that there are four scenes that the Gospel writers have linked together because they're a part of a much bigger story. And the scenes are kept together because the events of one are then illustrated in the lessons of the others. So here are those four scenes once again. Scene number one is when the disciples were sent out on their mission and then they returned and shared everything that they had done. Scene number two is when Jesus fed 5,000 men with a kid's lunch. Scene number three is Jesus walking on the water and calming a storm. And then scene number four is Jesus shared his discourse on the bread of life. So it's scene number four that we're actually getting into this morning. It is by far the longest of all of these different scenes. It spans 50 different verses. So it's going to take us a while to work our way through. But what you're going to find today is there is one big truth that is shared in this entire section, but it is fleshed out in multiple other examples and moments throughout the entire story. That one big truth is going to be our big truth for this morning. So we'll go ahead and bring it up on the screen at this time. That is, Jesus is the bread of life, and only those who savingly believe in him have eternal life. Let me say that once again. Jesus is the bread of life, and only those who savingly believe in him have eternal life. Now, while explaining this particular truth through these verses, we're also going to touch on the work of God eternal versus temporal matters, Jesus as the bread of life, his body and his blood symbolized in communion, also why the crowds really rejected him and why the disciples accepted him as Lord. So scene number four, I also need you all to know in the very beginning, is a scene of division. Here's what I mean. Jesus divides between true disciples and religious followers, between saving faith and intellectual agreement as well as between those who try to come to him on the basis of their works and those who actually will come to him based upon faith in what he has done. And all of these different concepts that I'm describing, everything that's going to happen in scene number four, has been built upon these interwoven truths that we have come through all in the first three scenes. So these are in your notes. I want to kind of quickly go through those once again. First of those is following jesus requires us to walk by faith and not by sight Faith is an indispensable part of the christian life The bible tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. We grow by faith We stand in faith without faith. It is impossible to please god So faith and trust and god dependence is kind of par for the christian journey number two is following jesus means we listen to his voice even when we can't see his movements his voice his promises his teachings they are all recorded in his word the question for us is one of are we spending time in his word are are we putting ourselves in a place where he can speak and where we can listen number three is following Jesus is more than agreement with his teachings. It is a surrender of your life to his lordship. There's a lot of people around the world who believe in Jesus as a historical figure. They believe in his teachings and what he shared. In fact, they they might even say he was a wonderful teacher. He was a moral teacher. He's a religious teacher. I agree with every part of that. But that's not the same as submitting to him as your savior and lord. And number four, Following Jesus means we recognize him as God and we worship him accordingly. It does not matter if you're in a place of peace or storm, in a place of blessing or problem, in a place of pleasure or pain. Worship is the only appropriate response to Jesus. Our context does not diminish his glory. So we have to see that those four underlying truths have kind of worked their way through the first three scenes and those four underlying truths are going to be the basis by which scene number four is going to be built upon so all of that being said i want you to keep your place in the text i'm speaking this morning on the subject the work of god and i want us to go to the lord in prayer ask his blessing upon this time because there's going to be some stuff in this text that might rattle some people a little bit There's going to be some stuff in this text that you're going to be like, "Mm, man, that's harsh. You're going to be even wondering whether or not I am mad at people who are not Christians. And that is by no means the case. The issue is I want to do my best to come through and explain from Scripture what Jesus is saying. And like I've already said, this section is a section of division. So if you feel like you walk away and like, man, that cut hard. It was intended to cut hard. But it was his words, not mine. Just keep that in your thoughts. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. And God, we need your spirit to guide us into all truth. Apart from you doing that, Lord, we just walk away offended. But if your spirit guides us into truth, God, there is a place in which you are sowing seeds of truth in our life at the right time that whenever you decide it's time to reap, it's going to bring about a harvest. So God, we need you for this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we are not going to read verses 22 through 25 because this section primarily establishes background information. Now, I'll tell you what's going on in that section. Feel free to read the section uh, a little bit later on. So here's what's happened. The crowds who had witnessed Jesus' miraculous healings in verse number 2, same crowds that were miraculously fed by Jesus, verses 3 through 13, are now trying to find Jesus. They knew, based on the day before, that the disciples got in the boat and started across the Sea of Galilee. They knew that Jesus went up onto a mountain. But after that, they had no idea what was actually taking place and where Jesus was. So they're searching for Jesus, and they find themselves going to Capernaum, which was a logical choice. It is very close to where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. It's also a logical choice because it was considered to be Jesus' adopted hometown based on Matthew chapter 4, verse 13. It's also a logical choice because some people in the crowd might have heard Jesus telling his disciples that they were to sail to Capernaum ahead of him, what we find in Matthew 14, 22. However it is that they found him, all we know is the story is now all this crowd, same ones who had been fed, have now found him in Capernaum. So notice what takes place in verse number 25. When the crowds finally found Jesus in Capernaum, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now you will notice he does not actually answer their question, and for really good reason. Because just the day before, when he fed the 5,000, they wanted to take him by force and make him their king. So had he said, I arrived in the middle of the night, walking on the water in the midst of the storm, it would have only have fueled those misguided messianic ideas. So you'll also find that Jesus many times avoids what he considers to be an irrelevant question, and he begins to focus on what the real issue actually is. So look at what he says in verse 26. He begins with his two famous words, truly, truly, some translations, amen, amen. Anytime he begins with that way, it is an emphatic phrase that he is using to grab the reader's attention and say, pay close attention to what I'm about to share with you. So what does he say after that? Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Now, this is a rebuke. He's basically saying, let me remove the surface level reasoning you're given for why you're here. You're saying it's because of my signs. That's not the case. You're here because your stomach is hungry. Now think about this for just a moment. This crowd was like searching for Jesus. They're trying to find Jesus. It even says in another place that they had taken all these little boats in order to go find Jesus. He does things so opposite of how pastors and churches do things today until it's, it's kind of comical in some ways. Because, you know, if there's a crowd that has traveled a long distance to come to church, like, man, thank you for being here. God bless you for coming. His words are a rebuke. It's like he almost offends them from the very beginning, saying, you're not here because of the signs, you're here because you're hungry again. Look at what he also says here. He goes on from there after verse 26. Verse 26 is a rebuke against their motivation. Verse 27 is a redirection of their pursuit. He says in verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes. Now, he's not teaching that people are to be lazy and that they're simply not supposed to work. That's not what he's saying at all. Rather, what he is saying is don't wear yourself out trying to get a free meal. Don't wear yourself out going town to town because somebody's offering a meal over here. That food perishes. But pursue, as he says, the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father, God, has set his seal physical food perishes spiritual food endures now the scene is very reminiscent to what has already happened in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well if you'll remember in that section Jesus revealed himself as the living water but this lady kept thinking he was talking about physical water and he keeps saying no i'm talking about spiritual water i'm the living water well in this section they still think he's talking about physical bread and he's saying no i am the bread of life so in Chapter 4, he revealed himself as the water of life. Now in chapter 6, he is revealing himself as the bread of life. So the clear reading of the text is simply an invitation to eternal life. You're going to see this word eternal life pop up all throughout the rest of chapter 6. But within that clear reading of the text, there is also a clear challenge at this particular point. Here's the challenge. Live today in light of eternity. Live today in light of eternity. Here's the reason I say it's a clear challenge. He's saying you're focused on the physical bread which perishes in just a few moments. He's saying that is a temporal thing. Instead, you need to focus on the bread of life which endures forever. It lasts for eternity. It is a challenge between the temporal and the eternal. The reason I want to bring that up is it is entirely too easy To get caught up in the here and now. It's entirely too easy for us to focus on what's urgent instead of what is eternal. And one of the most sobering parables that Jesus ever gives on this is the story of the rich man who continues to do more and more to gain more and more. The the story is actually found in Luke chapter 12 and it begins with these words. And he was reasoning to himself. That is a scary thought because people are notoriously self-deceived you give yourself enough time and you can talk yourself into any decision that's the reason there's stuff sitting in your closet that you ordered because you knew you had to have it on a late night infomercial right there and you talked yourself into it you thought it was going to be a great idea all the way until point you get it in your hand like this isn't that good Okay, we can convince ourselves of anything. So he begins with he was reasoning to himself. And then it goes on from there. And it says, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, he has conversation with himself. Did you see this? Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, rest, drink, and be merry. Listen to the next verse. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So it is with the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not right towards God. It's a powerful story that has implications for every single one of us. And that is, we can get so caught up In making a living and buying things and feathering our own nest that we miss the fact that this life that we're in is literally a blip on the timeline of eternity. And what we do here, it matters for eternity. So God blesses us, not so that we can just indulge every selfish desire, but he blesses us to leverage those resources and to leverage that influence for his kingdom purposes. The challenge is always live today in light of eternity. Do today what you will be glad you have done in eternity. It doesn't mean that there's not temporal needs that we have. He's just saying, don't focus on that. That's not the big issue. In fact, we go into Matthew chapter 6, and he talks about people who are worrying about the temporal things, what we'll eat and where we'll sleep and what we'll wear. And he's like, don't worry about those things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and those things will be added to you. So how did they respond to this challenge about temporal versus eternal things? Verse 28 says, this is the crowd speaking, what shall we do? So that we may work the works of God. Now that almost sounds good. Kind of sounds like the crowd is saying, Jesus, we just want what's best. We want what you want for us. You just tell us what we need to do so that we can work the works of God. But that's not what they're meaning. The issue is they picked up on the word work and they're now thinking they have to work for their salvation. They completely missed the word give. Jesus is saying there, the Son of Man will give you the food which endures to eternal life. They skipped over give and they focus on the idea of work. Because they're steeped in a very legalistic tradition, they thought they had to do something to merit eternal life. It is the exact same mistake that the rich young ruler made whenever he came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's what the lawyer made the mistake of as well when he came to Jesus and said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's the same mistake that countless billions of people make every single day around the world, and that is thinking that our being right with God is based on what we can do and not what Christ has already done on our behalf. Here's just a thought, maybe it's going to hit home for some of you, but salvation is not our gift to earn, it is God's gift to give. There's nothing that we have that can earn salvation. And besides, I don't know if you all picked up on this wonderful little theme that has gone through the first three scenes, and that is, his lesson has been, trust me to do what you can't, not show me everything you can do. Do you remember how the disciples were sent out? They were sent out to trust him, and yet they come back saying everything that they did. Then they get into the feeding of the 5,000. They, they're trying to figure out how they can feed the 5,000, and they're not trusting him. And Jesus comes through, and he does the miraculous, and they're like, oh, that's how it's going to happen. Then they're out on the boat, and they're afraid, and they're terrified. And once again, they're still not trusting him. The overarching theme has been, trust me to do what you can't not. Show me everything you can do. This is still the same exact theme that is happening. Look at what Jesus' reply was in verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. This is Christianity 101. This is vintage Jesus at its finest. This is actually the theological foundation on which the Protestant Reformation was formed. This is in your notes, and that is the rally cry of the Reformation, is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone salvation by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone we cannot work for our salvation we cannot earn our salvation we cannot demand our salvation prior to christ we are clothed in sin and we are spiritually dead we could not incline ourselves to god we could not bargain based upon our merit we could not even believe of our own doing we are holy completely totally At the mercy of God. Nothing that we could do at all. So what happens with people when there's nothing they can do for salvation? What can you do? Nothing. How can you be saved? Jesus. That's what he's saying right here. He says, believe in him who he has sent. How do we get in on the work of God? Believe in him who he has sent. How do we receive the bread of life? Believe in him who he has sent. And here's the crazy part. That should be the best news to any person in the world. When a person wakes up to the reality that their best is not good enough, but his grace is sufficient, it should mean every one of us should be singing the Hallelujah Chorus. But ironically, that's not the case. Do you know why? Because we are notoriously self-deceived. We think, I know I couldn't do it myself the other million fifty times, but tomorrow I got this thing figured out. See, the the issue is it doesn't matter if you're talking about the thousand fifty commands of the New Testament or the six hundred and thirteen laws of the Old Testament or the one command of the Garden of Eden, don't eat from that tree. People stink at following rules. We're no good at it. So whenever Jesus makes this incredible declaration that our eternal life is a gift he wants to give those who believe and not based upon what we do, everybody should be excited about this. Everybody should be like, this is the best news I've ever heard. But you know who gets excited about it? People who are already saved. Or Those who are about to be saved and the scales have fallen from their eyes on the fact they can't do it themselves And all of a sudden the good news is the best news they've ever heard That he has done something for us that we could never do for ourselves The sinful rebellious person says "Nah, I got it Tomorrow I'll figure it out Just tell me what to do God and I'll do it. So this crowd fits into that that second group of people. So look at their prideful, rebellious attitude in verse number 30. They said to him, "What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform?" Huh? What work do you perform? What do you do for a sign? They ate his last sign. Some of them probably had some of his signs still caught up in their beard. It was just yesterday. They were there whenever he fed thousands of people with a kid's lunch. And now they're saying, "Mm, what are you gonna do to prove yourself? Can you see the arrogance in this? Based on verse number two, They had been following him because they had seen him miraculously heal these people. It's not like he hasn't been doing signs. They've still been doing signs all along the way. See, that's the issue here. The issue is that sinful unbelief is never satisfied no matter how much evidence is given. So Luke chapter 16, verse 31, it says that those who reject the truth of God's Word will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. The issue is not whether or not he'll do a sign. The issue is when a person is still in their rebellion, they're not going to accept it. In fact, I don't know if you remember, but at the crucifixion, many of the unbelieving Jewish leaders mockingly said to Jesus, Let this Christ come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Mark chapter 15. That is the exact same wording right here. Do a sign so that we may see and believe you. But if you remember, when Jesus did not come down from the cross, instead he rose from the dead. That's a much more awesome miracle. They still didn't believe. In fact, they didn't believe to the point that they literally tried to persuade the crowds to hide the evidence of the resurrection based on Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 4. So this is a really important concept that we all need to really get our minds around. And that is, failure to believe is not based on an intellectual barrier. People can fool themselves sometimes by saying, I don't believe in Jesus on intellectual grounds. That is, uh, he is, he's not answered all my questions. He has not proven himself to me. He has not jumped through all of my hoops. And because he hasn't done that, I'm not going to believe in him. Listen, that's what people tell themselves so that they can sleep better in rebellion. Now just let that one sit out there for a little bit. Why would I say that? Because the problem is not insufficient evidence for the mind. The problem is the depth of sin in the heart's. Sinful people do not want to believe in a holy God. To recognize Him as God is to recognize that we are under a greater authority. It means we can't do everything we want and say everything we want and live however we want. It means there is a reckoning day somewhere in the future. If He is God, then that means we're not. So as a result of that, we reject it. It is a heart problem, not an intellectual problem. There is more proof, more substantive proof for Jesus' death and resurrection than any other event of antiquity. But this is why it has to be the work of God, not us. Because only God can open blind eyes. Only God can quicken the dead spirit. Only God can illumine a deceived mind. Salvation is the gift of God. It's it's not our gift. So look at verse number 31. They, They say, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Not only did they demand his credentials in verse 30, now they're thinking he can't come up with a quick sign fast enough, so they were gonna give him a head start. Like, hey, if you got if you need something to work with, you know, back in the Old Testament over there, you know, <laughs> Jesus or God gave a sign through manna. Basically, they wanted a repeat performance of what he had just done the day before. Now, Jesus had no intention of gratifying those materialistic whims. So in verses 32 through 34, he corrects them in four ways in their assumptions about the manna from back in the Old Testament. I'm going to go through these very quickly. That is, first, it was not Moses who gave the bread out of heaven. It was God the Father who gave the bread out of heaven. Verse number 32, as well as Exodus chapter 16. Second, manna was not the true bread from heaven, but it was a foreshadowing of the true bread which is Jesus Christ. Third, manna sustained for a while, and yet the bread of God gives life forever. And finally, manna was given only to Israel, and the true bread from heaven is given to the world, verse 33. So their response now is found in verse 34, and this is where we close. Lord, always give us this bread. They have still missed the fact he's talking about physical, or he's talking about spiritual bread, not physical bread. Do you know why this is so important for us? We have to be incredibly careful when we present the gospel to people around us. Because sometimes we're sharing the gospel and the person says, I want that. And instead of asking second, third level questions to find out if they even know what that is, we're just so happy somebody wants what we're offering, we're like, here, quickly, let's pray this prayer fast before they change their mind. It's not a prayer that's going to save somebody. Jesus has done what is necessary for salvation. The issue is, are we responding in faith to what he has done on our behalf? So in this situation, they're like, Give us this bread forever. And they don't even know he's talking about spiritual bread at this point. So the rest of this chapter, all of chapter 6, Jesus keeps pointing back to himself saying, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. If you don't have me, you don't have eternal life. They were intrigued by his healings. They were temporarily satisfied by his feeding. But they rejected him when it came to following him as Lord. As the chapter unfolds, you will see they're not true followers at all. They were interested, but they weren't willing to follow. They rejected his lordship and refused to believe in who he is. So here's our big truth again. Jesus is the bread of life, and only those who savingly believe in him have eternal life. So, what does it mean to savingly believe? There are three essential aspects of saving faith content, conviction, and trust, resulting in reliance. If you happen to have read the one page PDF that we posted this last week on our Life Facebook page, it was on saving faith, where we covered this exact idea so that people could kind of be prepped and ready to go for what we're discussing this morning. If you've not seen that, go check it out. Just download. It takes you five minutes, but it will more fully explain what I'm about to describe here. That is, when I say saving faith has content, conviction, and trust resulted in reliance, here's what I mean by that. By content, a person understands the claims of the gospel. They understand that Jesus lived a sinless life, They understand he died on the cross for our sin. They understand that he rose from the dead on the third day. And they understand that he gives eternal life to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in Christ. If a person does not understand the content of the gospel, they cannot exercise saving faith. By conviction, a person has assurance that the content of the gospel is true. It's possible for a person to say, I understand everything you're saying. I just don't believe it. So the third part of this is trust resulting in reliance. That is a person completely trusting the gospel as his or her only means of salvation. So belief is not enough. It's not enough to know the gospel Because according to what we find in James 2.19, even the demons believe and tremble. The issue is, do you understand the gospel? Are you convinced that the gospel is true? And have you entrusted yourself to it? Are you relying upon the gospel? Not as plan B, C, D, E, or F, but as your only sole means of being made right with God. If the question or the answer to that is yes, then that is a person has exercised saving faith. So, I want you to think about this as we close. All through this section, the crowd focused on two words. Do and work. Through the entire same section, Jesus emphasized two words. Come, believe. Are you trying to do and work to make yourself right with God? Or will you simply take the invitation he gave Come, believe. I ask you if you would to bow with me for just a moment. The heads bowed, eyes closed. We're going to have our praise band. They're coming forward at this time. I want to give people, though, an opportunity to respond to this. And let me say from the very beginning, if anything I've shared does not make sense, please come talk to me afterwards. It has to be that this makes sense, that you understand what I'm describing. But it might be that you fit all of those pieces of saving faith. It might be that you understand, that you believe, and you're willing to rely upon what Jesus has done for you. And if that's the case, I want to lead you in a way in which you can respond to this incredible gospel message that he's given to each of us. Here's the gospel again in a nutshell. Humanity was created for relationship with God. Our sin separated us from that relationship. There was nothing we could do to make things right ourselves. But Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And he rose from the dead that we might have eternal life. And he gives, as a free unmerited gift, he gives eternal life to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. If that describes where you're at this morning, I'm going to lead in a very simple prayer, and this is between you and God. It'd simply be this. God, I believe that gospel message. I believe I have sinned. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, and that he rose from the dead on the third day. God, as best I know how, I place saving faith in what Jesus has done for me. With heads still bowed, eyes still closed, I'm not asking people to come forward, but I would love to rejoice with you today. If you've prayed with me this morning, for just a moment, would you slip your hand up? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You may take them down. After the service, I've got a small book that I would love to be able to give to you. This kind of explains what this moment, this walk as a disciple is all about. I'll be standing out front. As you leave, please come by and let me know you would like a copy of the book, and I'll be more than happy to give you one. As we finish out this morning, we're closing out in communion. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to come through, and I'm going to do kind of a version of the Seder meal to really pull out the truths of what communion is about but today as we've been studying Jesus as the bread of life, I want us to take a moment that we reflect upon that, so at this time continue to spend time, just you and God ask God if there's anything in your life that is not pleasing to him, any sin that has crept in, any any wrong attitude, anything like that And if he brings something to mind, agree with him that is a sin, repent of it. Ask him to cleanse you in that and thank him for the forgiveness you already have in Christ. In just a moment, we'll go forward with communion.